This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And uh, I'm going to confess right up front, folks, that if there's a lot of strange nasally noises today, I've got bad allergies. So I apologize in advance if I sound stuffed up or nasally. It's because I am. But the show must go on and the podcast must happen. And so tissues in hand, bravely, I soldier forth to uh, let Sam do all the talking today. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just naturally nasally. <laughs> <laughs> well, today I am seriously stuffed up. But we come to the largest block of text we've ever covered in a Bible study on a podcast episode so far, four complete chapters of First Kings, chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And I have to tell you, this is the story of 10 kings, one of which was good. Good track record there, folks. One in 10 kings in, in between Israel and Judah are good. The other nine, terrible people. Um, That's about true to our experience. And, and okay, let's just go. Would you say it's much different in modern politics? A one out of ten ratio? Yeah. I'd say there's about one in ten politicians for whom I would say, well, maybe it's not quite one in ten. What's, I don't know, what's the congressional approval rating? Isn't it about 10%? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's well, somewhere ridiculously low. Yeah, could you find 50 of them that are, that are good? Yeah, maybe. If we looked really hard, come on. There's, there's. I, I would tell you this though. I would, I would tell you this. I would believe that if we went to the to the House of Representatives right now and found fifty members of Congress who you and I both liked them, felt like they were straight shooters, whether we agreed with them or not, felt like they were morally grounded, trying to do what was best. For, it would be fifty names that you would never have heard before. <laughs> that would be correct. Yes. I would agree with that. <laughs> it's going to be the junior. You're not getting committee assignments yeah, if no. you're like that. No, you're not. So at any rate. so That's probably so, unfair, but. Yeah, it is, but it's funny. So it'll be, <laughs> I'll leave it in. Um, so there, so one in 10 kings out of this chapter. But to go through the entire thing verse by verse, it would just be a three-hour podcast. So we're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is talk through some of the stories here because a lot of this is going to be setting up the guy that we meet at the end of chapter 16, who we're going to be talking about a lot next week, who is probably the worst of them all. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we're kind of building up to that. But but chapter 13, Sam, begins with the most unusual story. Um, it's the, the tale of Jeroboam, who's the king of Israel, the northern tribes, the northern ten tribes, and these two prophets. Do you want to kind of talk us through what's going on there? I mean, we don't have time to read through it, but tell us what's happening here at the beginning of chapter 13. Yeah, so, I mean, if you haven't had the chance to listen to the last couple of episodes that we've done, Jeroboam has emerged as the king of the northern tribes. After Solomon's kingship, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is going to be split. And it's split when Solomon's son Rehoboam has ten of the northern tribes come to him and they ask him, Will you please give us rest? And Rehoboam, being young and immature and a poor leader and brash, says, no, because you've asked me, I'm going to make it even harder for you. 
And so the ten northern tribes say, okay, we have no share in the kingdom with Judah and David's legacy. So we're going to form our own kingdom. We're going to go to the north, and we're going to fashion the kingdom of Israel. And Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, is going to be king of the southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and that's going to be the kingdom of Judah. And the ten northern tribes are going to be the kingdom of Israel, and you have the king Jeroboam. And so these two figures, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, become really, really important for the rest of the story of kings. So in all, I think in in the, the nation of Israel before it's conquered and destroyed by the Assyrian army in 722 BC, so about it lives for about 200 years, just about every king that's introduced is introduced by saying, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they walked after the way of Jeroboam. And so if you really want to understand what kind of evil the Bible is talking about for all these future kings of Israel, because the Bible saying they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and walked after the ways of Jeroboam, it's kind of important to understand what was the evil of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is introduced to us with a prophet who comes to him, and it's this, you know, a good prophet, a noble prophet, and the prophet goes to Jeroboam, rips up a garment into multiple pieces, and says, ten of the tribes are going to be given to you, and if you will walk after the Lord and obey his statutes and chase after him like David did, God will bless your kingdom. But Jeroboam, having that offer on the table, says, uh, it's more important to me that they follow me. And so I'm going to build all of the religious system of Israel surrounding and protecting me. So I'm going to I'm going to get rid of the trek to go to Jerusalem to the temple. They're no longer going to do that. I'm going to build my own golden calves and you have to worship here. And the Bible talking, you know, the Old Testament law that said that it had to be Levites that were the priest and the line of Aaron well, we're going to get rid of that. We're going to actually exile the Levitical priest, and I'm going to name my own priest. And later on, you'll see Jeroboam names himself as a priest. And he does start, and he starts building shrines to all these pagan gods and infusing lots of, of paganism and idolatry into Israel, and Israel just becomes utterly corrupt. And in this passage that we're going to go through today, one of the things that you find out about Jeroboam is he doesn't believe any of it. He believes, actually, that Yahweh is the true God. He believes that there's truth behind everything that the Bible lifted up, but he was willing to forsake it just to make himself more secure and powerful. You know, that's an interesting thing because from time to time, you'll meet somebody who will tell you that they make a credible confession of faith is what I'm getting at. There's mm-hmm. you, you listen to them talk about the Lord and how they know the Lord, and you think that that's it seems credible like they're actually saying and yet everything about their life tells you otherwise it's mm-hmm. like they don't live according to that at all yeah. and i've met people like that and i find myself wondering what are you thinking if you believe what you tell me about faith and about standing before god someday and about living in god's heaven and so forth are you just relying on the fact that all right god's going to forgive me for everything i do so i can do whatever i want and i'm like don't you see all the places where it tells you that's not true faith? That if you have, mm-hmm. that if your faith is like this rubber stamp, get out of jail free card, and you give God no thought at all, it tells you that this faith isn't true faith. Mm-hmm. You know, I just yeah. wonder what they're thinking, Sam. And you know? I think most of those people wouldn't say that they're actively living that way 
and defiance of God, it's that God doesn't even come across their mind until they're confronted with a crisis moment. Yeah. So I'm not going through my – like, I mean, if, if that's my – and I can relate to that. I've been there, um, you know, where where you live and, it, and it's not until the crisis moment where you go, God, I need you to show up. I'll make a deal. I'll give you whatever you need. Just get me out of this jam. Um, I've believed that you have authority all this time, but I've ignored you because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. But now that I'm in a jam that's caused by me abandoning your design for my life, now show up and rescue me, and I'll make a deal with you. And that's kind of Jeroboam. I mean, he's he's going to do what he wants to do. He's going to put God on the back burner. He's going to totally pervert everything that God has asked him to do and make it his own, which cheapens it. And the reality is, you know, I had this conversation with someone just a couple of days ago, actually in my community group, and we were talking about, to the Lord, this syncretic kind of worship where you fuse straight-up idolatry with faithful worship and you merge them together to where it's really just idolatrous worship is worse than if you were just straight-up pagan. And one of the points that I made when we were talking about it is if I wanted to destroy the currency – of the United States of America, the the U.S. dollar. I'm not going to go around and round up every dollar bill and every $5 bill and $20 bill and burn them. That You're not going to destroy it. What I'm going to do is introduce something counterfeit and then just make a bunch of it. And then what does it do to the real thing? It makes the real thing without value. Yeah. And so that's that's the – if Satan is brilliant and he's seeking to make God's covenant cheap – He's, he's wanting to make your faith cheap. Well, just give you like something that, that hints at it that's really close to it but doesn't require anything of you. Um, it doesn't require obedience. It doesn't require you to sacrifice. It doesn't require you to, to submit and surrender. Well, that's the cheapest thing you can get. And so, I mean, the, the biggest danger to Christianity today is not Islam. It's not, you know, cults. It's lukewarm, milk toast Christianity that presents a gospel that's not really the gospel. Yeah, and what does it tell us in the New Testament? There's like, ain't that don't be deceived because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Mm-hmm. Like he's gonna, yeah. he's not gonna come to you wearing a red union suit carrying a pitchfork. <laughs> that's not what he looks like. He's gonna come to you looking like the pastor of a church. He's gonna mm-hmm. come to you looking like some celebrity Christian leader who's written a book about a very woke Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's what's gonna come to you. It's it's gonna it's going to be close enough to what is true that when you look at it. You go well. That sounds like what I've heard Pastor Sam say. You know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the deal. They're going to try to counterfeit it. You're absolutely yeah. right. So always be on the lookout for a counterfeit. Yeah. If it comes to you saying, "Well, you know, traditionally the Bible has called you to do this. The gospel has called you to do this, but we're going to you know make it a little easier." Run. Yeah. That is counterfeit. And I think the other thing too that I always end up looking for is people that want to tell me what what the bible didn't say but means now it's like well the bible doesn't the bible didn't <laughs> say a lot this. Of that going on the bible didn't say this because it didn't exist back then but this is what it means and i'm like okay um you you just hang out right there i'll be back don't go anywhere and then you're just like yeah. you're, hold, you're, hold your breath hold your breath i'm going i, I gotta get out of here so so in our story today here at the beginning of chapter 13 jeroboam is standing by the altar making offerings which is goes to what you're saying jeroboam was pretending to be a priest himself 
Um, and this prophet shows up and he cries out against it, says he cries out against the altar itself, which is interesting to me. Um, and the, I guess we need to explain to that the, that the, that the altar that's being cried out against is an altar that shouldn't have even existed. Correct. This is, this is in Bethel. And, um, this is one of those false places of worship that Jeroboam has put together. So, if you read this passage, folks, and you're like, why is he so upset at the altar? It's because that altar shouldn't have existed. That's not one of God's altars. That's one of Jeroboam's altars. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an interesting thing because he says, the prophecy that the guy says is that the priests of the high places will be sacrificed on that altar. I'm like, that's pretty gruesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, does that and, actually happen at some point? Well, when Josiah, who... Josiah is not going to come along for another 350 years or so. And so the prophecy that this man of God comes up is he says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, which should trigger in our minds something. Um, But it's not Jesus, right? Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. We're like, ooh, ooh, ooh. But it's not Jesus. It's Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you, altar, the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And so out of the gates. Now, Jeroboam's going to hear this. And all the people of Israel are hearing this. And they're like, who is this Who is this Josiah? Like, when is he going When is he going to come? Um, but it's setting up a judgment that is being made on all of these idolatrous places. And Jeroboam and everyone else is going, yeah, right, yeah, who are you? You know, who is this man of God? Is his prophecy real? But he's issuing this declaration that you are going to be judged and your priests are going to be slain on these altars. And when he does that, it gets Jeroboam's attention and not Mm -hmm. necessarily in a good way. Jeroboam gets, you know, it says that when the king heard what the prophet was saying, uh, Jeroboam stretched out his hand and said, seize him. You know, it's like you have one of these like Roman, you know, it's like Jeroboam's very impressed with himself. Seize him, <laughs> right? Um, and immediately, I, you know, it. God strikes his hand with, I guess, what's leprosy here, right? Or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, you've been saying that, that that's something that should call to mind what happened with Moses, where mm-hmm. the same thing happened to Moses, but in sort of a mirror image, like Jeroboam is the anti-Moses, the false Moses. Yeah. So so going back to the story where Jeroboam and Rehoboam first emerge, Jeroboam goes before Rehoboam, who is this son of Solomon who's got a tyrannical spirit. And Jeroboam is kind of the voice of Moses. We talked about this last week where he's saying, hey, lighten the forced labor, the slavery of my people. Let my people go, in, in other words. He's the Moses figure. Um, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is kind of the tyrannical slave driver. And here you see Jeroboam, by the way, is going to be shown to be not Moses but Aaron. And so when he's first introduced, he's like, oh, this is kind of a Moses figure. But then what does he do? He does exactly the opposite of what God tells him to, and he builds these golden calves and sets them up for worship at Bethel and Dan. And so you're like, wait a minute. Now he's Aaron. Well, that's not good because Aaron does some really dumb things. (laughs) Um, And what's interesting, the Bible is absolutely begging you to make that comparison because Jeroboam will have two sons – or four sons, but his his first two sons – he names um, Nadab and Abihu. Well, guess who named his sons Nadab and Abihu? Aaron. 
Aaron. Okay. And guess what happens to those sons? They're caught offering up strange, unpermitted fire on one of the altars, and the fire of that altar goes out and consumes them. So it's – in a sense, this is like sovereign poetry being written by God, and Jeroboam is so – uh, brain dead that one he's building these golden calves but he's naming his children just as Aaron did after he built the golden calves Nadab and Abihu and they are going to have bad conclusions just as Aaron's sons did and so here Moses the sign that was given to for Moses to show the people of Israel that he was legit was one was to turn water into blood, which happened, and the other one was to take out his hand and it would become leprous, which would have freaked people out back then, and then he would put it into his cloak and then pull it out again and it would be healed. Well, Jeroboam is not getting this as a sign that God is with him. <laughs> he's, he's getting this as a sign that God has stricken him. And right before he, this happens, the, the man of God had given this this promise. He says, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. And so as soon as he says that, his arm goes leprous. And right after that in verse 5, it says, and the altar was also torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar. So now the man of God's words are validated. It's like, okay, dude. I'm telling you, your priests are going to be sacrificed on this altar. God is standing against you. He's just stricken you with leprosy. The altar cracked in half on its own, and the ashes have just pointed out you've seen the Lord moving. And so now the king says, oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, uh, something and, bad has happened here. Yes. yes. I'm on the losing side here. <laughs> and he says, entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And so the man of God does, and the king's hand is restored to him, and it was just like it was before. And so this is setting up, like, what more do you need, Jeroboam? Like, this should have been a moment where you're like, I'm on the wrong side here. But Jeroboam is absolutely dead set to serve himself. Even that sign wasn't enough to turn his heart back to the Lord. Yeah. The exchange that happens next, of course, is that Jeroboam then having had this remarkable thing happen, says to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. And then verse eight, one of my favorite responses in scripture. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. <laughs> give me half of everything you have, which is a considerable amount. I'm still not showing up. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came, which I presume means that God wanted him to go home through a different route, probably mm -hmm. for his own safety. They would probably know which way he had come, you mm -hmm. know, coming up from Judah, and he's like, take another way home. Mm -hmm. And and part of this, and this you, you find this throughout the scriptures and I, I love the reason why God says do not go in and eat and drink with this guy and it's not because God is saying you know we, we shouldn't dine with sinners and this person is no good like that's not behind it what's going on here is if the king can somehow repay this prophet it puts the king at a negotiating on at the negotiating table for his wickedness and what what God is wanting this guy to do is I don't want anyone to assume that this mission was for some kind of reward, I want you to leave the king to sit and have to wonder and struggle with his sin. Do not, do not go in and dine with him 
and and let him try to negotiate. That's interesting because I think that's something that carries into modern day. Uh, you know, the, the people who try to reduce faith and God and and their walk before God into some sort of transactional thing, they do that in you know lots of different ways. But how many times have you heard about the guy who? who's somebody who writes the big check for the church when the church needs a big check, who mm-hmm. then feels like he ought to have some kind of say in how the church uses that money. Right. Um, that kind of a thing. So if basically if you take my money, or in this case my bread and my water, my the, the hospitality of my house, you are acknowledging that I should have some say in, in what you do. You're, you're mm-hmm. basically giving over. So that, that kind of behavior is a pretty common thing. Yeah. I mean, one of the first – the tithe, the first time we ever see the tithe in Scripture, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 14. And it happens after – it's an incredible story where Abraham actually goes to rescue his nephew, Lot, and he rescues with him all of the Sodomites that had been conquered and taken off into captivity, the people of Sodom. And at the end of it, the king of Sodom comes to him and he's like, oh, my goodness, here's this great reward. And what does Abraham do? He says the same thing. I will not take a penny from you. I want no one to think that I did this for reward or for you to think that you have some kind of sway over me because you paid me off. I will not take it. And then not only does Abraham not take the money from the king of Sodom, but then he turns and gives one-tenth of what he does have to this figure, Melchizedek, who is a pre-incarnate Jesus, who's the priest of God Most High. And so there you see this same ethic, I will not be corrupted by somebody being willing to pay me off. And I don't want that person to think that because they gave me food and drink that they now have – I owe them somehow. I want this to be purely between them and the Lord. And that's, I think, what's going on here. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, and so then we have a very – Interesting next exchange here. Yeah, this the, the, is crazy. It is crazy. A- inter- uh, interesting. No, no, no. This is crazy. Okay. <laughs> so so he the prophet leaves. It says he, he went another way, did not return by the way he came. And now suddenly there's another prophet introduced to us, an old prophet who lived in Bethel. It says that his sons came. They came to their father. They told him what the man of God had done. And they also told him what he had said to the king. And their father came back and said, hey, which way did he go? Um, and the son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone, and then saddle my donkey. So off he goes, you know, riding masterfully on his donkey. Um, <laughs> he goes after him, and he finds this guy sitting under a, an oak tree, and he says to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And the man of God says, I am. So then the old prophet says to him, come home with me and eat bread. The man of God says, I can't, was what you just said. I'm not going to return with you or go in with you. I will eat, don't eat your bread, eat, drink your water, nothing. I'm just supposed to go back to where I, you know, taking a different way than the way that I came and eating and drinking nothing, just I'm supposed to leave. And then, this is the thing, Sam, the old prophet says to him, I also am a prophet, as you are, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Sam, what is going on? Yeah, I don't know here. There's all sorts of <laughs> of ways that you can go with this. I mean, you have an old prophet. The Bible calls him a prophet. He doesn't have, um, as we'll see later on, he doesn't seem to f- get the judgment of God upon him. Um, 
and he just lies. And so you wonder, like, was this a malicious lie? Did he say, ha, 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 I'm going to trick this guy and I'm going to make him rebel against the Lord? Or, you know, I'm trying to think, is is he just playing loose with the word of God? And I think that's more likely it. I think with the best of motives, you have this old, you know, this man of God who says, hey, I'm not allowed to eat or drink water here. And, I mean, he's on a, a multi-day trek, so he's already sitting under a tree. He's probably famished. Yeah. He's probably you know, withering away from this travel, and he looks like he desperately needs help. And so what does the prophet do? No, 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 you're fine. You know, I'm a prophet too. God's going to be okay with this. You're okay. Just come into my house. You, you need food and water. And, but he lied. I mean, straight up. And so whether he had the best of motives and thought, you know what, I'm just going to shortcut the word of God because this guy really needs food and water, or it was malicious, or, you know, one commentary I said, you know, when he claims that an angel spoke to him, you know, was making the case that perhaps an angel did speak to him, but not a good one, you know, that this was demonic. Might have been a fallen angel, yeah. Yeah. And so there's different ways that you can take it, and it doesn't make it clear, but – the rest of this passage gives you this impression that this prophet is repentant and sad and faithful in some sense, even though he lied here. And, you know, this is, this is just one warning that, that I take from this is the word of God reigns supreme over every other authority. I don't care what person comes to you and says, well, actually – you know, it doesn't mean what it says in the Word of God. Like you, the Word of God has ultimate authority. No, no, quote unquote, prophet or preacher or anyone can come and convince you that what the Word of God says is subordinate to what He says. And the old man is tricked in, or the man of God is tricked into saying, "Oh, well, I'm going to believe the word of this man above what I heard with my ears from the Lord." I think that's a good point because how many times today uh, in our modern, especially the internet era where every preacher's on YouTube and everybody's got a Twitter and everybody can tell, you know, what somebody somebody says in in some remote corner of the country suddenly can become viral and everybody's watching this video. You know, how many people out there claim that God told them this or God told Mm -hmm. them that? Um, The fact is that that we have God's word. And Mm -hmm. when we see something in God's word, that's it. You know, if God shows us something else in his word, that's fine if there's if we're led in a different way, but it comes through the word of God. Um or God is going to in some way communicate that to us. Mm-hmm. Um but this idea that somebody's going to walk up to you and say God has God has uh, told me that this is what you're supposed to do. Um you know, I don't know when I say that God, you know, when somebody comes to you and says God told me what I am saying is that we certainly should be skeptical. I mean, or we should yes. have our discernment radar up. Um, Absolutely. It, it doesn't mean that God doesn't speak through other people. He does at times. I, I totally believe that God speaks to us through other people. But the lesson here in this passage is the word of God as given to us in the scripture holds paramount authority over everything right, else. Right. Beneath that, you know, God has wired you. He's He's made you with particular passions, of de, with desires, and so long as they're godly desires and not self-seeking, listen to those. God has given you those. He speaks to you through your desires if they're not, you know, sinfully wi- driven. He speaks to you through other people. He speaks to you through, through lots of things. But if any of that 
is in contradiction to what the Word of God says, it is not from him. There are people that have a spiritual gift of encouragement. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're somebody that God has gifted in some way, to do that kind of thing, by all means, <laughs> you know, continue to do yeah. what the Lord has gifted you to do because that I think is I've seen people really like dust themselves off and go on and be greatly encouraged when somebody has come and said, "Man, the Lord has laid on my heart to tell you this to that that you're supposed to do this that this is not don't be afraid of this whatever you know without even necessarily knowing what it is that person's fair, facing at the time um, and that's those are really kind of the cool stories mm-hmm. where it's like this person had no idea what was going on and yet they came and they gave me this word from the lord that encouraged me and and this is how it all played out so god does do that there are people that are gifted to speak that way and most of the time that kind of encouragement is driving you into deeper obedience to what god is calling you to do you know sure i I think one of the things where it's going to be challenging for our generation is there's certain teachings that uh, that the scripture lifts up that are no longer popular today and right. with regards to all sorts of issues uh, the the one that's most obvious is sexuality and and all that that entails and it it's really easy it would be so easy for the man of god and the prophet to say hey you know what god really didn't say that really didn't mean that but we don't have license to pick and choose you know and and there are going to be people out there behind um microphones or on stages that want to say, you know what? Like, let's let's just let's just let's reduce God's holiness. Let's make it as though we we can all achieve it. And so we're going to remove these standards that He set to make it easier for everybody. And like, you know, that's not yours to do. The word of the Lord is the word of the Lord. Yeah, and you can't change it. What was the first attack that the devil made against humanity? Right? He said to the woman, "Did God actually say?" <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's where when Satan, you know, his first attack was to ask, did God actually say he mm-hmm. attacked God's word? That's right. And if that's God's word, then it's attacking God's character. Would yeah. he really say that if he loved you? You know, it's that's always the attack of the enemy. Yeah. He's going to make you question the veracity of God's word. And if he can't overthrow that, then he's going to make you question the heart behind God's word. Right. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, and then try to tell her that that's not what he meant by what he said. You shall not <laughs> actually die. You know, that kind of thing. So I think that when, you know, when you have received God's word through the Bible, you've, you've, you know what the word of God is for you, that when somebody comes and asks you, did God say that? You're like, well, yeah, I read it right there. I read it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's no, 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 no. That doesn't mean and if you start saying that it doesn't mean something that it plainly does, because the Bible speaks plainly, mm-hmm. um, you brought up the you brought up the uh, issue of sexuality. Okay, it's not a popular thing to say that that sexual intimacy is something the Bible endorses in marriage, and mm-hmm. that the Bible defines marriage as a man marrying a woman. Mm-hmm. That's what it does. It's not. It's it's it is a. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not other forms of sexuality. There are. Yeah. But if you're looking for the form of sexuality that the Bible endorses and says this is what's good and proper before God, then this is what you have. Mm-hmm. That's not popular. No. When I'm doing premarital counseling and you're holding to an ethic that's no longer the norm and you say, hey, this is what the Lord teaches, 
with regards to sex before marriage and asking them to covenant not to. It's like, are, are you really doing this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what century are you from? I can't even believe you're bringing it up. You know? Yeah. So. I mean, but the word of the Lord is the word of the Lord. And so when somebody comes to you and says, that's not what the Bible means by what it says, you're like, it says it really plainly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's take a look. Yeah, let's take a look at that. So so anyway, the uh, the man of God from Judah goes with the old prophet back to his house. And then, uh, again, a most amazing thing happens. He says he goes back with him, and he ate bread at it, in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, it says the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. This would be the old prophet. Mm -hmm. And he, the old prophet, cried to the man of God who came from Judah. That's where you hear the, like he's crying here. As I read that, Sam, I pictured God compelling him to say Mm -hmm. this. Like, it's like it just burst out of him. Mm -hmm. He was overcome by the word of the Lord. Like he could not, he could not hold it within himself. Um, which is an interesting thing because it's like, well, why didn't the word of the Lord come to the other guy when he was on his way back there saying, didn't I tell you not to do that? And maybe that's part of what's going on here, which is when we're told by God what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to do that until God tells us to do something different. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to be changing directions every time because some cool guy on the Internet puts out a video saying, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if your church did this? You know, that kind of thing. So it says, he, the old prophet, cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. First of all, that's a kind of an indirect threat. I mean, it is, it's just a statement of, it's telling you that you're certainly not going to die peacefully at home and be buried where you expect. So mm-hmm. something's going to happen to you that's bad, but it doesn't say to the guy, you're about to be eaten by lions. <laughs> it doesn't tell him <sighs> it's, it's about to happen, you know, what's, what is about to happen. So there's a, I mean, there's a couple things in there. First, I do think that this is, as I just said, it's like when God tells you to do something, Sam, you're supposed to keep doing that. And you're mm-hmm. not supposed to listen to somebody else that comes up and says, no, 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 no. Did God actually say, no, what God didn't mean by that. When, when, when somebody comes and starts whispering in your ear that what you need to do is something different because wouldn't mm-hmm. this be better? And don't worry about what God said. You're supposed to, you're supposed to stay with what God's told you to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the Garden of Eden. And it's interesting that the temptation here is eating. It's yeah, that's true. Drinking, right? You that have, is true. You have the the tempter, who's a prophet, who's a real prophet, because God comes and gives him a message. Right? A prophet who thinks, ah, you know what? Let's 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 cut around this and tempts him with something to eat and drink. And it's immediately after he eats that here comes this pronouncement of judgment. And it's you're not going to make it back home to be buried in the tomb of your fathers, which in the ancient world was a tremendously important thing. It was an honor. And so here comes the the news: death is coming now, and yeah. it, it's it's the right after the pattern of the fall. You ate in disobedience; now death is coming, and it's a weird death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After he'd eaten and and drunk, he'd had he he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. This is the old prophet saddled up the donkey, and as he, the man of God from Judah, went away, a lion 
met him on the road and killed him. Now, that's not the unusual part. Wild animals killed people on the road all the time back then. I mean, let's be clear. This was out in the middle of the wilderness that you were mm-hmm. traveling between cities. There were wild beasts out there, and you could be eaten. It's one of the reasons why you didn't travel alone. Quite frankly, you traveled mm-hmm. in groups of people because it was safe, right? So he's a lion meets him on the road. The lion kills him, and it says, and his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body and behold men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body and they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived so this is weird what's your guess <laughs> what do you think is meant by the the lion doesn't eat him the lion kills him and sits beside him that's yeah. weird so i mean that shows you for sure that this judgment comes from god absolutely you know that the lion has killed him but doesn't feast on him and the lion is sitting beside this perfectly delicious donkey. And doesn't yeah. eat the donkey. And yes. doesn't eat the donkey. But is sitting there and waits there, in a sense, is waiting for this prophet to come and and to see this scene. And so it, it's letting you know that this is absolutely deliberate, um, God's judgment upon this man from Judah. And interestingly, it's a lion that comes to kill him of all the different animals that were there. You know, there were bears and all kinds of animals, but it's a lion, which is the the symbol of the tribe of Judah, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's a lion that has killed this prophet. So lots of people read into this that this is, you know, directly the Lord's judgment and it's a lion. Is there symbolism there? I don't know. I don't know that there needs to be, but it is interesting. He's from Judah. Right. And so this there's no prophet in all the land of Israel that is worthy to go and and stand before King Jeroboam and tell him, you know, all of this idolatry is going to be thrown up. They have to send someone from Judah. Think how bad what that says about Israel. Including the old prophet who yeah. was from Bethel. So they yeah. had a prophet in Bethel, but he wasn't worthy. Yeah, he wouldn't have done it because you see here already he plays fast and loose with God's word. So he sends this man of God to go, which is interesting because now this is where the story starts making us really uncomfortable because you're starting to think, now, wait a minute. Here's a prophet or a man of God from Judah who is so faithful to the Lord that he's going to risk his life to go stand in front of a vicious king who tried to kill him, but God prevented him. He's that faithful. He goes up there. He makes this one mistake, this one act of disobedience, and he's killed by a lion. And his act of disobedience, Sam, is to believe another prophet. Yeah, yeah. So that that makes us go, oh, I don't like where this is going. Like, it is. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> very uncomfortable. So let's continue with the story. So then at that point, it says that, and when the prophet who had brought him back, that's the old prophet, from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion, as we just said, or had not eaten the body or torn the donkey and apparently doesn't tear the old prophet yeah either. that's where i'm like now wait a minute yeah it's one thing for the guy to be fooled and to give this this old prophet the benefit of the doubt but now the prophet's there okay i want equal justice here you know? yeah like let's let's tear this guy down but the lion doesn't do it he just sits there right alongside 
the donkey. the donkey and watches the prophet load the man of God on the donkey. So it says, And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. That's so again, very weird. Yeah, it is very weird. I think I'm confident that we'll see both of these guys in glory. Like I, I, I believe that they're faithful and I think the, the fact that it gives tribute to the fact that their word delivered through the Lord is going to stand. Both of these guys are entrusted with the word of God that comes out of their mouths. Um, you know, that's not a guarantee that they're saved, but it's a strong indication and both of them seem to have a faithfulness to God. But mm-hmm. what's interesting here is why does he kill the one who seems more faithful but was tripped up versus the other one who started the whole deal and yeah. seems to be wayward and we want to look at this and say, uh, this makes me really uncomfortable with what God's doing here. But I think the message for us in this is God is going to hold those who who lift themselves up and are called into ministry to a much higher standard. So this prophet who's – you know, you get the impression that he's not active anymore. He's not up there calling out all this idolatry. He's kind of comfortable. You know, Jeroboam doesn't want to kill him. If he was speaking up, he would have been dead. He's an old prophet. He's retired. Yeah. So there you go. He's in retirement. But now this guy comes and he is doing the active ministry. He is the one who is putting himself forward as the man of God, obedient, going in, preaching the word to the king and to those who will listen, and he is held to a higher standard. The Lord doesn't take the old prophet, who's in a sense a mission field at this point. Yeah. And all of Israel is certainly a mission field. You know, God doesn't send a lion to kill Jeroboam. He doesn't send the lion to kill but, – but the man of God who takes the call to proclaim the word of God is struck down. That makes me shake in my boots, you yeah. know. But I think here that's what God is communicating. If you're going to lift yourself up and hold yourself as a prophet to teach my word and to hold my standards and to be my voice to call out idolatry and wickedness and the depravity that's going on in this northern kingdom, you may not play fast and loose with my word. Yeah. Isn't it James that says not many of us should be called teachers because we're judged by a higher standard? Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely. A, that'll that'll make you Yeah, I want to be a Sunday school teacher. No. <laughs> no. I want to be a pastor. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have no doubt that I have uh, many times have taught things that are not in accord with the word of God and thankfully no lion has <laughs> just leaped through the window or anything. Have you seen any donkeys though? Uh, no donkeys. Okay, no donkeys, no, donkeys. no lions. Okay, we're good. I guess down in here it'd be like alligators or water moccasins or something. <laughs> okay. But but I think that's the takeaway. I think that's what God is doing here is he's, he's showing he is going to hold his people to a higher standard. Yeah. You know, as hard as I think it is for people to hear too, uh, the fact is that the, that the best thing for you isn't necessarily that your life in this world continue. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right there, that's going to be something that some people object to because the people that are feel like you know, but you know, God let this other guy die. The, the the lion killed the man of God from Judah, and I'm like, yeah, and the man of God from Judah, as we were saying, is now in glory with you know with his Lord mm-hmm. in glory, and that's better for him than if he had lived, if the lion had not killed him. Which doesn't make... I'm not some kind of weird fatalist guy that says we need to drink the grape Kool-Aid and all die in Jonestown. (laughs) That is not me. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that if your opinion is that the highest and best thing for you in this... for you in your existence is for you to remain in this world, that's not necessarily the case. I'm just saying it. It's just not necessarily the case. And so when you look at this, you're like, okay, the prophet... You know, the, the man of God disobeyed, was led astray. Let's, he was tricked, okay? And, and God, as a result, sent this lion. The lion killed him. In effect, and again, this is going to sound weird, but God was saying, go to your room. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, I'm going to rub you out of existence. He didn't say, I'm going to throw you into hell and burn you forever. It's like, no. go to your room. You know, and in, and in some sense, you think about people who died – or lives that were lost for the sake of the eternal kingdom. Um, you know, here here you're going to have a grave of this man of God and this old prophet that will always be there for these centuries calling the people of Israel to repent, being a constant reminder of what he had said to Jeroboam in front of all the people that you are to leave this idolatry, that this altar is a damnation to you and your priests are going to be slain here. Like, turn back to the Lord. Stop chasing after all this nonsense and and really wicked religious systems. And so in his death, he's preaching in this tomb for centuries. Mm-hmm. Whereas if he'd have made it all the way home, his message would have ended with that one encounter with Jeroboam. You know, I think of Jim Elliot when he, you know, I know that's one of your favorite stories, but sure. a missionary who came out of Wheaton College and went down to South America to a to a tribe that was the Waodani, um, yeah. Yeah. And I know they were super savage and he gets killed. You know, and what comes out of that? Like I think if had he lived, less good would have come out of it than had he given his life and inspired a a nation to to missionary work and mm-hmm. and further work with the Waodani that brought them to faith. And one of the things that he wrote in his journal that I love this quote is he says he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's talking about death. He's like, you know, I'll give away everything I have in this life, including life itself, in order to gain that which I cannot lose. But if you, and Jesus talks about this, that if you're living in a way that says, you know, death is the ultimate enemy and I'll do anything and everything to avoid that because that is the ultimate tragedy, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, don't live and try to gain all this stuff from the world and lose your soul. Your soul yeah. is more important. This life, you're going to lose it no matter how hard you try. Mm. There's, there's, there's no formula that gets you out of death. You know, and the story, it is a, it is a great story. It's, it's my wife's favorite story even more than mine. She's a huge Elizabeth Elliot fan. That was John mm-hmm. Jim Elliot's widow. Um, and the the story continues that 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 family stayed and and lived among the Waodani and that at some point the their children the descendants of the men who were killed on that beach Jim Elliot and his his, his companions who were killed there were baptized 
by the elders of the of the church there, which were in some cases the same people who killed the men on the beach. It's like God so completely redeemed that story that it's just it's a if you've never read Through Gates of Splendor, which is the book uh, that Elizabeth Elliot wrote that tells the story of this, or if you've never seen um, the the movie, there's two movies out there. One is a documentary, and one is a sort of dramatized version. It's the one's called Beyond Gates of Splendor, and the other's called The Tip of the Spear. Um, really, it's a very very inspiring story. It's mm-hmm. it's it will encourage your faith because the way that God worked in this situation shows. At the moment in which those men lost their, lost their lives on that beach, I know that those families were thinking, it cannot get any worse than this. It cannot get any lower than this. And yet God so completely redeemed all of that that right now Jim Elliott is rejoicing in heaven alongside some of the same men who killed him. Yeah, and it, it ultimately boils down. Again, that's a weird thing to say. Doesn't that sound weird when yeah, I say that? Yeah, it is. But I'm going to tell you the truth. He's rejoicing in heaven alongside some of the same men who killed him. <laughs> Which is – it's wonderful. But yeah. that's what the gospel can do for you. You know, and how you approach this is entirely dependent upon whether or not you see eternity or this life as your ultimate. Yeah. Um, and that makes all the difference. I, one of the books that I read recently was um, about – Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary who went to China, and in the course of his missions, reaching you know the early stages of the revival that came to China, you know desperately you know showing people Jesus and salvation, and lots of people came to faith through his work. But in the process, he lost a wife, he buried kids on the banks of the Yangtze River, and he make, he comes home during a season when he's sick, and I this was one of the more stunning parts of the book he went before a, a, a conference of scottish missionaries and he was telling the story of how he was writing and this true story he's riding down the Yangtze river and and one of his friends fell overboard and he was freaking out because i guess this person couldn't swim and so he's yelling at the boat owner stop 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 and the person wouldn't stop because they were on a mission and so finally he jumps overboard and the boat stops and he's screaming at another boat that's dropping nets over on the shore. They're fishing, and he's like, we have someone drowning. Bring over your boat. We need the nets. We need the nets. We've got a drowning man. Hurry, hurry, times of the essence. And they said, how much will you give us? And he said, they said, give us 30 whatever the currency was. And he says, well, I only have 14. And so finally they're like, all right, we'll come over. And they come over, and they drag their nets, and they pull up a dead body. And he says, when I was talking to that group of Scottish missionaries, they were so appalled by these Chinese people's lack of value of life. And then he turned the tables on them and said, you, you are that man. There are people eternally, eternally going to a fate that they're not prepared for. And what are you doing? What, what cost are you bearing to make sure that we're getting everybody that we can who is drowning in this world? Mm. And that – like that perspective of seeing the eternal as more important than the temporal, if the church really believed that every single person on this planet is immortal and they are heading to a destination, good or bad, it would give you a heightened sense of urgency and far more freedom, by the way, to see everything in this life as not defining you. It's yeah. not ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, after the end of, of this uh, series here, this all these events that happened, Jeroboam completely repented and turned away and became a good guy. And never, never, <laughs> no, <laughs> the chapter concludes with these two verses. After this thing, okay, so after everything that happened here, after the prophet and the and the prophecy and the whole thing with the hand and the altar splitting and the lion and the donkey and all that stuff, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. <sighs> Didn't learn any lessons at all. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty committed. Yeah. So now we come to chapter 14 and uh, the story again of Jeroboam and this time his son Abijah. Um, mm-hmm. And Abijah gets sick and he tells, and the, the names are going to sound familiar here because there's Ahijah. Abijah is the son. Ahijah is the prophet who had told Jeroboam that he was going to get the Ten mm-hmm. Kingdoms given to him. Mm-hmm. And so Ahijah has gotten old and he's become mostly blind and he's, you know, he's 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 ready for retirement also. You know? mm-hmm. So Jeroboam comes up with this idea that says, okay, I need to understand if, you know, if my son is going to live or die. I want to get a good word. I know that if I go ask him, <laughs> it's not going to go well for me because no prophet of God is going to talk well to me because you know what I'm doing here. So he sends his wife undercover. You know, I, I think it's partly that. I think, you know, maybe he's saying if I go to a prophet, they're they're going to rebuke me. But I think the reason for this is probably more. Uh, think about this. Jeroboam is proudly just putting putting the flag down into the ground saying, no, it's my golden calves and my system and my priests and I'm in rebellion against God. But what happens? Now he reaches this point where his son is sick and what does he do? Does he go to his priests? No, he knows they're powerless. Yeah, This shows you how wicked Jeroboam is. He knows that the Lord is the true God. He knows that the Lord's prophets are the ones with truth. And so he says to his wife, all right, arise, Disguise yourself so that no one sees that I'm sending you down to Shiloh to get an answer from a real prophet. Um, He's hiding the fact that he knows that the Lord's prophets in Judah are the real prophets, and he's a fake. And yet, at the same time, you say that, and I and I can agree with that. But if if he did know that Yahweh really is the Lord, then wouldn't you think he was going to know that? The disguise isn't going to fool Yahweh. You know, it's like maybe Ahijah was going to be fooled by this, but Yahweh isn't. And if you're if you're asking for the prophet to give you a word from Yahweh, it's not going to be like I can hide that this is my wife. <laughs> but but he does it anyway, right? He does it anyway. He's a yeah. bonehead. Disguise yourself, and then you know, as soon yeah. as as soon as she walks in, of course, Ahijah's like, uh, "Hello, wife of Jeroboam." Yeah, because God <laughs> comes to Ahijah in advance yeah. and says to him, "Hey." Behold, the wife of Jeroboam. He didn't say hey. He said behold. Hey, hey behold and hey mean the same thing. Uh, behold, the, it doesn't mean that. Behold means look. Hey just means I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. Which is like, I'm not cool. This is going to build suspense. We don't know what we're going to read on to find out what he's going to say. Um, but Ahijah's warned in advance. So when she shows up, in fact... As Sam just said, he does say, welcome, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with 
unbearable news for you. It says, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore away the kingdom from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes, but you have done evil above mm-hmm. all who were before you. That's heavy. Yeah. And have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back, which is a way of saying you've disregarded me, like you've mm-hmm. walked past me. He's not, this is a, yeah, that's a sign of, your back on me. of disrespect too. It's like yeah. I completely disrespected me. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. So he's just mm-hmm. going to kill the males. <laughs> yeah. You had yeah, a note the, about that. <laughs> yeah, and and the Hebrew, it's literally when it says every male, it's everyone who pisses against the wall. <laughs> you just which is which There's is a mental picture for you. Yeah, there you um, go. You know. And Mark pointed out that the King James still translates it that way, which yeah. is which is good Every, for them. Everyone who pisseth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but and then it says, I'm gonna burn up the entire house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. In the ancient world, you didn't have sewage systems. You threw all your trash out and sewage and everything else, and eventually it would build up to where pockets of methane would build underneath all of this decomposition. You'd light it on fire, and it would burn ferociously. And so what he's saying is your house is going to be burnt up ferociously until it stinks no more in my nostrils. Um, It's a very, very harsh thing. But you remember the pattern where Jeroboam starts out as a Moses going, pleading for the for the freedom of his people. Then he yep. becomes an Aaron where he's building um, building golden calves and he's naming his sons all these things. And then, you know, his arm turns leprous. And now what is happening? God is coming and saying, your sons are going to die because of you. Now who is he being compared to? He's being compared to Pharaoh. You're yeah, going, that's true. You're going to lose your son. The one who's going to inherit the throne is going to be taken away from you because you have become so reprehensible in my sight. And so he says, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, dogs will eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens will eat. For the Lord has spoken it. And then he says, arise, go to your house. And then he gives this prophecy. He says, when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all of Israel shall mourn and and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord. And so the firstborn that's going to be taken away from Jeroboam, who's going to die, is actually saved. Yeah. Yeah. There's something in him that's pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. And so the story goes on, and it says the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in water and root up Israel out of this good land. By the way, that word reed takes you back to the Red Sea. It's the same sea of reeds. It's the same word. And then listen to what ultimately happens. He's like, you know, I'm going to – he's predicting what's going to happen with Assyria when Assyria comes in and wipes them out and takes them into exile. 
He says, I'm going to root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates, which is going to be Assyria and Babylon, because they have made their ashram, where they did these unbelievably wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. So it's not just that you did it. But your leadership that I anointed you with led others to follow after you. You're not just responsible for your wickedness, but everyone who follows after you as well. Mm. And so it says the Jeroboam's wife arose, departed, came to Tirzah. And you're thinking to yourself, like, if, if God if – I'm, if I'm the wife of Jeroboam and God says, hey, when you go home – your son's going to die. I'm going somewhere else. I'm headed the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was my thing. It's like you're, you're wondering, like, what did, does she just not believe him or is she a fatalist? And she's like, well, the Lord said it, so it's going to happen. I may as well just go home. But anyway, regardless of, of what she's thinking, she goes home. Do you wonder whether she understood what the Lord was saying there when he said that uh, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord? And she's thinking, I would rather have my son with the Lord now than have him mm-hmm. go through what the Lord just said is coming. That's an interesting thought. Like, I don't yeah, want I mean, my there's... son to go through all of this. I'd rather have God take him now. Yeah. I mean, the Bible doesn't specify, so it leaves you to kind of wonder which of those different perspectives that she has. I mean, Nobody I don't get... reads between the lines like me, Samuel. <laughs> but now listen to the second half of verse 17, and you get like he's clearly making Jeroboam now Pharaoh. It says, as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And so as soon as she comes through the door of the house, the child dies. As soon as this uh, this omen that the Lord has given, her walking in, she comes through the door of the house and the child dies. And that's oh, – for Pharaoh, it was it was the doors that distinguished whether or not the firstborn child mm. dies. And now it's right at the door of the house that Jeroboam's firstborn son is going to die when his wife walks through the house. I mean it's just a tragic, tragic tale. Mm. And it said, all of Israel buried him and mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Ahijah, the prophet. And you wonder, like, when you read this story, you think to yourself, good Lord, like, this is this is heavy. There's It, it reveals how intensely holy the Lord is, like, and he will not allow this faith to be perverted um, he holds that to a high standard, and it makes me think back to the beginning when, when the man of God goes to Jeroboam, and he says this. He says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you, the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Like this is justice of God. This is what – if we got what we deserved, every person who perverts his name, who perverts the faith, should be thrown on an altar and put to death, right? What does the gospel say? Another prophet, Isaiah, is going to come along in chapter 9 and give us a little bit of a different prophecy. He says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called not Josiah, but Wonderful 
Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God is going to become a man and step into this world. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. And what is his mission? He is going to come into this world and he is going to be the one who's thrown on the altar. The only one who's righteous in the place of everyone unrighteous. And so think about that. Like here God is and he's declaring, you know, justice as we deserve. But in Christ, you get grace and mercy that's so far beyond what we deserve. The just one suffering in my place, being thrown upon the altar of God and sacrificed. The blood of God is going to be spilt on that altar so that I can be made a righteous priest mm. and prophet and mm. king in the sight of God. That's the gospel. It takes everything. We read this passage and it's intended to make us uncomfortable. When, when I hear, oh my goodness, that, that man of God, that's me. How many times do I fail the word of God? How many times do I fall short? How many times do I let idolatry get the better of me? I deserve everything that it's promising Josiah will do by throwing these false prophets on an altar. And God himself said, no, I will go to the altar. Mm. I will be slain for you. Hmm. Stunning. Yeah. It's just – it's amazing how the gospel turns a story as ugly as this and throws it on its head and shows the beauty and kindness of God to people like us. Mm. That's good news indeed. Um, well, there's a lot of stuff that we haven't gotten to that uh, the clock on the wall says that we don't have time to get to. Uh, the, the story goes on in chapter 14 where we, you read about Rehoboam and the terrible things going on in, in Judah, uh, where Rehoboam actually acts in a way that essentially makes – Judah again the vassals of Egypt like mm-hmm. the Lord brought them out of Egypt and here they're basically going back under the authority of Egypt they're they're yeah. paying Shishak off to avoid getting conquered by Egypt um, things are not going well there too all of that wealth of Solomon whew, all right gone. out the door to Egypt and then chapter 15 and 16 I said it earlier when Sam and I were kind of planning out this episode it's like reading Game of Thrones it's like this king stabs that king stabs this king and then that king takes over and then this king's fighting with that king and then he gets crushed by a this or a that it really is rapid fire like carousel of kings you've got eight kings talked about in the last two chapters there and only one of them mm-hmm. Asa is said to be a good king that does what's that's good in the sight of the Lord and he's a king over Judah and the thing that it tells us about Asa, and I really think this is what struck me, is that it says his heart was holy for the Lord. Um, even Asa did many good things. It tells us about things he forgot to do or didn't get around to doing or didn't do for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So not a perfect man, but his heart was for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we see what God wants is God wants our hearts. Uh, so we do encourage you to read through the second half of chapter 14 and chapter 15 and 16 to sort of get the flavor of that, because when we come back next week, we'll be talking about chapter 17 and Ahab, and we'll uh, we'll get you caught up a little bit about Ahab, and then we move on to talk about the conflict between Ahab and Elijah. And I will tell you, folks, I really, really think that Ahab and Elijah is one of the more 
is would you accept this if i said sam it's it's like the wild west it's like it's like mm-hmm. elijah's like this gunslinger prophet who comes into town and makes bold and outrageous statements and and just turns the whole place upside down and then when everybody comes outside and the weird music starts playing and the six guns are uncovered and everybody's standing around looking at each other it's elijah who pulls out faster than everybody else and fires six times and 25 people die it's like elijah's amazing yeah he's a he's an incredible prophet yeah. it's, and it's it's like him versus hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophets it is a it's great and he's a bold man he is a bold man that's it you know <laughs> i was trying to describe elijah and i said that he was brash he was he was confrontational but he was also fiercely loyal to the mm-hmm. lord um mm-hmm. and i was thinking man that's a good way to be if you're going to be a prophet of god to be brash and confrontational and fiercely loyal to the lord you're well equipped for that Uh, But we're going to have to let that stand as our last word for this week because the uh, clock on the wall inexorably moves us toward this can't be a three-hour episode. It could be a three-hour episode, but we can't (laughs) let it get there. Um, We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us today, that this study's been profitable for you. Uh, We do encourage you to keep up with this series of messages, Desiring the Kingdom, which are taking place right now at Rio Vista Community Church. You can get caught up with those on our website at riovistachurch.com, or you can find them in our smartphone app. Just look for Rio Vista Community Church in either the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Um, So you can find it all there. We do encourage you to get caught up with those, um, as well as you can find all the back episodes of Out of Water, at riovistachurch.com that's r-i-o vistachurch.com slash out of water or you can find that on apple podcasts on google play or on spotify or again in the Rio Vista Church smartphone app. So lots of ways for you to keep up with everything that we're putting out there. Uh, We're really, really grateful for everybody that's listening. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for uh, communicating with Sam and myself. We find that very encouraging. If you do want to send us an email and let us know that you're listening and what you're thinking about the podcast, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. We'll be back next week with... Uh, First Kings chapter 17 as we continue with Desiring the Kingdom. And in the meantime, uh, we wish you all a blessed Holy Week, a blessed Easter, um, that you would come together and celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Um, and then we look forward to talking with you again next week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.